The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Kate Andrews and Fraser Nelson. HS2 is at risk of further cuts to the route north of Birmingham as the Chancellor looks for savings. Kate, talk us through what's happened so far. So the government is desperate to find some money. It's looking to find money for its day-to-day spending and also leading up to an election next year. It's looking for some kind of tax cut. And it seems that HS2 is once again on the chopping block because it is a hugely expensive project where they might be able to find some money where they could divert that to uh, their personal priorities. I am in two minds about this story. I have real mixed feelings. On the one hand, HS2 is a disastrous construction project. It should be scrapped. It is billions and billions of pounds over budget. It is years delayed. And by the time it comes online, it's essentially going to be out of date. This was never the right construction project for the UK. And we should not get caught up in sunk cost fallacy. The fact that money's already been spent does not mean that we should spend many, many billions more on the project. We should be looking to enhance local infrastructure and also think about far better technologies for our transport if we if we really want to go for something big. But On the flip side of that, you once again have a government that is looking to cut capital spending so that it can move that pot of money into day-to-day spending. And this was the theme of last week's cover about broken Britain. That's a very common phrase now, and I think there's broad agreement that things simply don't work. But the cover was challenging why that is the case. And I think a strong argument does go into the fact that successive governments always rate the capital spending budget because they want to please voters. They want to offer more money for the NHS. They want to offer more money for welfare and pensions. They want to offer tax cuts sometimes, not all the time. And so they it's its really a, a politics of short-termism. I know on George Osborne's new podcast out this week, um, he, he talks about HS2 and, and he you know, he, he, he ushered in this project. Uh, he's responsible for this project. And he says, you know, are we prepared to take the difficult choices and really put, put the money into long-term investment? Well, George Osborne didn't do that. George Osborne reduced the capital budget by 15% when he came into the Treasury in 2010. He was guilty, along with everybody else, of, of rating these budgets for more day-to-day spending. It's easy to look back on your very bad project and say that you want someone to fund it now. But this is the problem. They, they all kick the can down the road. They all expect somebody else else is is going to take care of our falling apart pieces of infrastructure and nobody wants to invest in the immediate term. Fraser is there an argument that this has been going on so long now uh, you know that effectively to not do it is is just a waste? That is what George Osborne and other HS2 backers would like to reduce it to. He would say look for heaven's sake we've spent this 13 billion pounds already every great construction project in British history has always suffered delays we just need to be grown-ups and get on with it but that's rather facile logic I mean it's going wrong in many ways all the time the original bill was something like 33 billion now it's about three times that and let's take the plan to rebuild Euston Station that was only a few years ago supposed to come in at 2 billion now it's closer to 5 billion so the government is sitting there watching these things go way out of control, and not by small amounts either. I mean, even just scrapping the Houston project would save three billion quid. Against this, you must also put 
the original conceits. It doesn't take long to get from London to Manchester or from London to Birmingham. The idea that you need a bullet train was always a political um, device from George Osborne. He'd come back from Japan. He was very struck by the, the bullet trains there. And what he intended to do was to be a chancellor at a time of austerity where he'd be cutting things back. But he wanted to juxtapose that with a construction narrative and put himself in a hard hat. So he would go through the motions, the choreography of somebody who was investing very much so he could deflect the criticism that he was cutting back. Of course, he knew all the time that the real bill for HS2 would come in and somebody else his watch and he didn't really mind very much if there wasn't much of a case for high-speed rail all the studies in high-speed rail in other countries have shown that it doesn't really have the economic uh, impact that people thought and very soon the even the original calculations of the cost and benefit collapsed so the economic rationale for hs2 has um, probably for the last five to seven perhaps even eight years has been non-existent and it's gone on because of the sunk cost fallacy. So I think the government's quite right to say that we are at a time when we, we're sending kids home from school because they haven't got concrete properly. And my, my kids were sent home from school the other day because of the waterworks didn't work properly. You've got so many things that are cheap and easy to fix in Britain going wrong, that can we really afford to build these massive white elephants? So the more that you apply, I think, the, the rigorous scrutiny of logic, I think a Labour government will do this as well, the more you work out we can't live in a country where we're piling tens of billions into HS2 product that we don't really need, where, where we are withholding from schools, from roads, from waterworks, from other things, far less snazzy, far less politically sellable, but still absolutely vital projects, which we as a country have been skimping on for far too long. Kate, do you think there's any other projects where they could potentially find these savings uh, for the things Fraser's talking about? Well, look, you can you can always look at something that you plan to build over a 10-year period and say, gosh, I'll take the money now, but the real area that they're going to find savings um, is going to be in that incredibly tough decision to reform what keeps guzzling up all the money, and that's the NHS, and that's the state pension. If you want to find money, if you want to free up money for your tax cuts or for your other spending plans, you have to tackle those two departments. It's not the capital investment down the road. It's what we're spending right now because those projects only become more expensive. We are only expected to spend more on the NHS and more on state pensions as the years go by. You had the Work and Pension Secretary Mel Stride this week admitting that the triple lock is unsustainable. But you know he, he basically was like, in the very long term, i.e. you can read that as, don't worry, we're not going to mess with that too much, but somebody else is going to have to eventually. If you want to find the money, everybody knows where to look. Between health and welfare, I think that accounts for roughly 40% of all public spending. There's your money, but you got to level with the public and tell them that, and that's a very unpopular thing to do. And on the subject of health, the NHS waiting list in England has hit a record high, as 7.6 million are on hold for routine treatment. So that's a priority of Rishi Sunak that's not going particularly well, well, is it? Yes. I also found out a few days ago that when Rishi Sunak announced his cutting waiting list as one of his five pledges, he hadn't squared this with the Department of Health. They were all really surprised to see him come out of that because they knew then this wasn't going to happen. They had forecasts saying that the NHS waiting list was going to keep rising until March 2024. And it was going to do that because of the way that they were planning to tackle the waiting lists. They wanted to go for the two-year waits first, then get the 18-month, then the 12-month. Now, this, of course, this is logical. I think they're quite right to do it that way. But 
it, what they could absolutely tell was that the waiting list, meanwhile, was going to keep rising and rising and rising. So why would the Prime Minister get up there and declare one of his five priorities to be reducing something that any of his advisors could have told him was absolutely going to keep going up? So this isn't a surprise. But you're right, Katie, it does um, sit rather ill beside the Prime Minister's um, pledge to get waiting lists down. I'm a big critic of his five pledges. I think they're using weasel words and I think they create a narrative of disappointment and they undermine trust in his um, in his professionalism. But perhaps he meant to say that he intends for them to start falling at some point. So perhaps he would declare a victory in March next year if they do start to fall. But I'm afraid to say I don't think that will resonate particularly well, people who remember what the waiting list was when he made that pledge. And the thing is, that waiting list itself is a rather crude measure. I think three-quarters of the outpatients, a lot of these, um, and this isn't 7.6 million people either, a lot of people are there for two or three appointments, and also a lot of them are for checkups, which may or may not need to take place. So it's a crude measurement, it's a deceptive measurement, but nonetheless it's a measurement that Rishi Sunak has asked us to judge him by, and one which is going to keep going in the wrong direction, I think, for a few months yet. And just just finally on that phrase, just one thought. As you say, you've been very critical of the five priorities. Do you think there's something in the fact that we spend so much time talking about them, including yourself and writing about them, uh, perhaps... Richard Sunak has at least managed to move the debate to looking as though he cares about some of these issues? Yes, because with every premiership, there's always a question, how do you tell if it's going well or going badly? Every single person in the country probably have a different take. So, so if you want to be objective about it, you need to come, if you want to come up with a great, a great set of values, you can take the test that the Prime Minister himself gave us. He was the one who stood up saying in his words, either I'm delivering for you or I'm not. Either these things are happening or they're not. And he intended this to basically be a proxy, admitting, OK, I may struggle as a political salesman. I may look as if I'm trying to sell you a timeshare rather than run a country. But I will do these things for you and you can set aside whether you think I'm an inspiring person or not. But you can say I will deliver for you. Now, I agreed with that logic, but I very much disagreed with the, le- with the measures that he chose. I do think that Rishi Sunak is a far better prime minister than we were able to gauge by those tests. I think they, they set him up for failure, and I, I still find it very um, surprising that he chose those things. Okay, do you think Rishi Sunak gets any points for framing the debate? Probably in a way Kostama's five missions haven't. I suppose you could give somebody credit for framing the debate, but then you have to ask, why did you frame the debate in a way that you were guaranteed to lose it? Why would you set a motion that you were guaranteed to lose? Uh, yeah, I think credit is perhaps the wrong word. Sure, he's he is shaping the debate. That's what, you know, if you're in government, it's a lot easier to do than if you're in opposition. But he shaped it in a way that has been such a gift to his critics and such a gift to the Labour Party because a lot of these objectives will either not be met or they'll be met on a technicality. And people, I think the worst part of it is people aren't going to feel better off because inflation is still going to be around 4 or 5% by the end of the year if the government is lucky. And that means everyone's still going to feel a lot worse off because prices are still going to be going up. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.